0: Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Let me read those verses and I'll pray for us one more time. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me once more. Father, we need your help. I need your help to preach. We need your help to listen. So would the same Holy Spirit who inspired this text come and illumine our hearts and give us faith to receive what you say, to trust that your words are for our good. Be with us now uh, to do us good through Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most Riveting scenes in the whole Bible uh, is recorded for us in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Uh, Those chapters describe the giving of the law as God's people are assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's at the foot of Mount Sinai as God's law is given uh, that we see one of the grandest theophanies or visible revelations of the glory of God as God himself descends on Mount Sinai to meet and to speak with his people. As God comes down to Sinai, it starts with the sound of thunder. Uh, The Israelites gathered at the foot of the mountain begin to see flashes of lightning. The mountain becomes shrouded in a thick, dark cloud. The blast of a trumpet An otherworldly trumpet sounds louder and louder and louder. The earth starts to quake. We read in Exodus that the Lord had descended on Mount Sinai in fire. The whole mountain is smoking like a campfire and shaken like a leaf. And at the climax of this revelation of God's glory, God speaks the Ten Commandments to his people. He says to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And after the people of Israel see the fiery mountain. And after they hear the law of God, they are exposed. The people understand we are not fit apart from God's mercy to dwell with this holy God. You remember the people of Israel say to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we are going to die. God's holy law is unbearable for sinners. Not because there's anything wrong with God's law, but because God's law reveals that there's something desperately wrong with us. The picture at Mount Sinai is very clear. God's good law reveals His good, holy character. God's good law also reveals the ways in which we are not good the ways in which we are defiled. Now, it's very important to say God gives His good law to His people out of love. Uh, It's helpful to see that God is giving the law to His people, not as a way to earn salvation, uh, but as a gift to a people He's already redeemed from Egypt. The law is given to God's people both as a convicting mirror, to drive them to Christ for mercy and as a good guide for their life into the ways of God, the ways that are good, that lead to life and blessing. And so God means for us to be driven by the law to the gospel for mercy and then sent by the gospel having been redeemed back to the law, not to earn salvation, but to be made like the good God who has saved us. Well, tragically, throughout the Bible, we find that we tend to do something else with God's law. We're not driven by the law to the gospel all too often and then back to the law as a good way of life. In our sin, we tend to exchange God's law for something that many throughout church history have called legalism. We tend to exchange God's law for legalism. A very simple definition of legalism is depending on what you do to earn God's favor. Now, legalism looks like it takes God's law really, really seriously. But what we'll see in our passage this morning is that legalism is actually a substitute for the law of God. Legalism is something that we use to hide from God's sin-exposing law, from his holiness, because we don't like to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, even though we need to. We don't like the way that God's good holy law exposes what's wrong with us. That is, I think, the primary dynamic that we see in our sermon passage from Mark's gospel this morning. Our passage is about hiding from God's law behind legalism. There in verse 1 of Mark chapter 7, we read that our story occurs uh, when the Pharisees gather to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem. Let me just take this moment to make a brief comment on the structure of Mark's narrative here. Remember, we, we haven't seen the scribes and the Pharisees in Mark's gospel since back in chapters 2 and 3. Remember, in Mark chapter 2 and 3, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees repeatedly clash with Jesus over his ministry. And at the end of those clashes, uh, the scribes and Pharisees reject Jesus and they attribute his miraculous power to Satan. Well, between chapter three, when the scribes and Pharisees reject Jesus, and chapter seven, we haven't heard from the scribes and Pharisees at all. Uh, What we've had is in chapter four, Mark gave us some of Jesus' teachings And then from the end of chapter 4, really to the end of chapter 6, to the beginning of our passage this morning, what we've gotten is really a series of miracle stories that reveal more and more about who Jesus is. We had a brief interruption in chapter 6, narrating how Herod killed John the Baptist, Uh, but for the most part, we've been answering that question, or really Mark has been answering that question, who is Jesus, by telling us about his miracles. Well, that theme of looking at Jesus' miracles and seeing more of his glory, that is again interrupted in our passage at the beginning of chapter 7 with a return to the Pharisees and the scribes. They come back onto the stage. So it's worth asking, why does Mark tell us this Bible story? Jesus had innumerable interactions with all sorts of people. Why does this one make it into Mark's narrative? Well, it seems that Mark's purpose in sort of shining a light on the Pharisees is in order to warn us against their legalism. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, beware of the leaven or the infecting yeast of Herod and of the Pharisees. So As, I, as I've studied it, I've come to believe that this passage is in the Bible as a warning against the leaven or specifically the legalism of the Pharisees. We're meant to see what the Pharisees do, see what Jesus says about it, and avoid it by God's grace. Now, saints, let me me say this sermon in particular is going to be one uh, in which you might be tempted to apply it to someone else. This is a sermon in which you are going to be tempted. I'm certainly tempted to, you know, see what it says. And say, oh my gosh, I know people who do that, right? But Jesus doesn't say later in Mark's gospel, be sure to play I spy with the leaven of the Pharisees, right? He says, you, 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 you beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So saints, by God's grace, let's, let's apply these things first to our own hearts, Four points in the sermon this morning, each about this subject of legalism that we see in the scribes of Pharisees. Four points, I'll give them to you as we progress through the passage. So first point there in verses 1 to 5, legalism looks really good. That's our first point, legalism looks really good. Before we talk about what's wrong with legalism, we need to see why our hearts find it so appealing. And our passage this morning, I think, illustrates why legalism often looks so good to us. Uh, Look how Mark sets the stage for us in verses 1 and 2. He says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And now as modern people, we instinctively associate hand-washing with what? With germs. And we're like, yay, hand-washing. But germs are not the point in this passage. Mark tells us very clearly in verses 3 and 4 that the Pharisees have a problem with the disciples' unwashed hands, not because of hygiene, but because of their traditions about religious ritual purity. We'll look at the parenthetical Mark. It's literally in parentheses in the ESV in verses 3 and 4. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, literally wash their hands with a fist. We don't know exactly what that was like, but it's clearly some sort of technical religious way of washing your hands. Mark says, they are holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now you might know that the Old Testament law of Moses did prescribe some ritual washings on some occasions. <clears throat> so the Levitical priests they were required to wash <coughs> excuse me to wash their hands and their feet before they entered the tabernacle. And if a person became ceremonially unclean, sometimes that person would have to wash in order to become unclean, to to become clean, rather. So these washings in the law of Moses, they were meant to be a picture or a vivid object lesson of how we need cleansing from our sin, from the defilement of sin in order to have relationship with God. So the law of Moses did require some ritual washings, but the law of Moses did not require all of these extra washings that the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees' washings, as we see, were a matter of man-made tradition, not of God's commandment. Now, the idea of being extra zealous about religious ritual washings is probably not resonating very strongly with us. That's probably not the temptation that you struggled with This week. Uh, But actually, we see in these verses, I think, some of the things that make legalism in all of its forms so appealing to us. Let me show you four reasons from the text that legalism looks so good. Four reasons legalism looks so good. First, legalism looks morally serious. Legalism looks morally serious. Can you see how the Pharisees? appear to be taking obedience to God really, really seriously. Right, God says, wash on these occasions. I'm going to wash on more occasions than that. I'm going to go above and beyond. Extra credit for me. Right, many of us can find that at times really appealing. right? Maybe because of a God-given desire to do what's right. Uh, maybe because of pride. Maybe for all sorts of reasons. The moral seriousness of legalism makes it look really good to us. Now, I want to, I want to be clear. Being actually morally serious is a good thing, right? God is very serious about morality. But for now, I'm just pointing out that one of the reasons that legalism looks so good to us is that it has the appearance of being morally serious. The second reason that legalism looks so good, legalism is often based in tradition. Mark tells us three times in these first five verses that the Pharisees are performing these washings in observance of tradition, the tradition of the elders or the religious leaders. Now that word tradition, it literally just means something that gets handed down. And it's very important to say there is nothing inherently wrong with tradition. In fact, in the apostle Paul's letters, he uses that word tradition in a positive sense. The book of Proverbs speaks highly of receiving the wisdom that is handed down to us from the past. So I'm not saying that all tradition is legalistic. I am not saying that. The Bible is not saying that. But it is important to note that one of the things that's so appealing about legalism is that often it piggybacks on tradition. So I remember when I used to be a member of a church, Uh, that had an order of service very similar to the order of service uh, at our church. And I loved the order of service, and I still do. It's so helpful to me. It just puts God's word right at the center of our worship together. I remember learning uh, that the order of service that I so enjoyed had its roots back in the Protestant Reformation. And I have to admit that after I learned that, there was something in my heart that said, wow, Are we great or what? Like, do we know how to do church or what? Our order of service is a tradition that stretches back to the Protestant Reformation. Now, do you see, it's not legalism to have a tradition. In this case, it's really wise and helpful. But can you see how easily legalism can piggyback even on wise tradition? Can you see how easy it is to develop a sense that our tradition is the way and anyone who doesn't do it like us is inferior? Tradition can be really good, but wherever there is tradition, either ethnic tradition or church tradition, national tradition, cultural tradition, there is a danger that legalism might piggyback on that tradition and trust it as a way to make us righteous before God or at least better than others. Tradition is not bad, but we need to see that part of legalism's appeal is that often it's based in tradition. A third reason that legalism looks so good, it's morally serious, often rooted in tradition. Third, Legalism loves attention to external details. Legalism loves attention to external details. Now, once again, attention to details can be really good. That can be the product of a godly, wise work ethic. But notice, legalism loves to give attention to external, visible-to-other-people details. We'll see why later in the sermon. You can see this all over Mark's description of the Pharisees' washing habits. They wash every single time they eat. And they don't just wash their hands, they wash their cups, they wash their pots, they wash their vessels. I don't know how, but one manuscript says they even wash their dining couches, right? You get that this, the sense that the Pharisees, they're looking in the mirror and they love how manicured their moral image looks, like, wow. How serious I am about all of this. Now, again, attention to details, even external details, is not wrong. That's not the same thing as legalism. But it's one of the things that legalism uses as its appeal, it thrives on it. Fourth and finally, legalism looks good because it enables comparison. It enables comparison. That we've said that legalism often looks like taking things up a notch by doing the things that others aren't doing. Well, one of the perks of doing that is that you can compare yourself to all the other people who are not on your level, right? Legalism enables comparison. That seems implicit in the Pharisees' question there in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Right? kind of a veiled accusation behind the question, I think. The Pharisees appear to think that their practice, rooted in tradition, so very morally serious that it is, makes them better than the disciples who don't do it. They win the comparison game. And friends, if we're honest, don't we like to feel not just good, but better? Right? Don't we like not just to feel successful, but exceptional? Now, Again, I just want to stress to you that at least the first three of those four things are not inherently wrong or legalistic, not wrong to be serious, not wrong to think about tradition, not wrong to give attention to detail. It's not even always wrong to try to be exceptional depending on your motives. But the great problem with legalism is that it hides behind these things in order to escape God's law. Legalism hides behind an impressive external show to escape God's exposing law. Jesus puts it even more strongly. He says that legalism is really just an act. That's our second point this morning. Legalism is an act. First point, legalism looks really good. But second point, legalism is an act. There in verse 5 the Pharisees have just asked about why the disciples don't follow the tradition of hand washing. And instead of answering their question, there in verses 6 to 8, Jesus rips their mask off. Look at what he says. He says, "Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites?" That word translated hypocrites literally that word just means actors. Jesus says to the Pharisees, listen, you know what you're doing with all of your hand-washing and all of your scrupulousness and all of your traditions and all of your manicured self-image and your self-superiority? You know what you're doing? You are acting. You are pretending. You look so good, but you don't love God and you don't follow his laws. You don't care about the internal heart purity that these laws were intended to point you toward. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are acting. Uh, There in verses 6 and 7, Jesus applies the words of Isaiah, read for us earlier, to the Pharisees. Look there, he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Right, that, that line from Isaiah, read for us earlier, is an indictment of Israel for continuing the outward forms of their worship. Right, the temple worship was running strong in Isaiah's day, while the people lived in disobedience to God's laws. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're exactly like ancient Israel, you put on a good show, you look like you're honoring God, but it's all to hide the coldness and the deadness of your heart. And That's why, Pharisees, you're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Because you know if you taught as doctrines the commandments of God, they would address and expose and change your hearts. The Pharisees, the legalist, hides behind other external things in order to escape the heart-searching law of God. Friend, what, what are we tempted to hide behind in order to escape the heart-searching law of God? But friend, sometimes we're tempted, I think, to hide behind our theology. Right? We, we become really good at saying the right things about God, and we think that that equals loving God. And loving the people made in his image. But do you, do you love God? Are you growing in godliness and holiness and love and the way you treat people? Well, no, but you ought to hear me talk about doctrine. right? Sometimes I think, I think we hide behind our politics. right? We, we fixate on the bad things going on in this country. Look at how bad our political opponents are. And no dispute, there are bad things going on in every country in the world. And there's a way of talking about bad things out there that's right, that we need to do. But There's also a way of talking about the bad things out there that's mainly in order to distract from the bad things in here, right? What else do we hide behind? We hide behind social media, right? We curate this image of ourselves that's both so beautiful, but also so authentic, right? It's not wrong to have social media, but... Do we use it as a mask right, to to look at how we look right there rather than how we look to God on the inside? We we hide behind being nice. Do I keep God's law? Well, I I must be okay because everyone thinks that I am so nice. I must be okay. We hide behind things other than God's law. We hide behind religious rituals. We hide behind church attendance. We hide behind community service. And even though many of these things can be good, legalism does these things as an act to convince others, maybe even to convince ourselves, maybe even to convince God that we aren't exposed as sinners by God's law. What's so ironic is that this legalistic act, it looks like it takes God's law so seriously. But in reality... Legalism actually rejects God's law. That's our third point this morning. Legalism rejects God's law. Looks good. It's an act. And it's an act that rejects the law of God. Notice how Jesus concludes his first diatribe there in verse 8. He says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Right? Jesus is not angry. He's not frustrated that the scribes and Pharisees wash their hands a lot. He's frustrated in that by shifting the focus away from God's law, they've actually abandoned it, right? Legalism shifts the focus away from the law of the God who sees our hearts and onto commandments that have to do with outward appearances. Jesus makes the same point even more strongly in the second example that he gives there in verses 9 to 13. He says there in verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. There in verses 10 to 12, Jesus describes the practice of something called korban. That word comes from a Hebrew word meaning dedicated. So the idea seems to be that the rabbis in Jesus' day had come up with a set of rules about vows dedicating your stuff to God. And in this system of rules, uh, the word korban had become a a technical term uh, equivalent to making an oath. So it seems like this is what was happening. According to the rules about korban, uh, you could make some of your possessions dedicated to God in such a way that prevented you from giving any of your possessions away, but still allowed you to use your possessions for yourself in sort of a qualified way. So if mom and dad are coming over, in the example Jesus gives, and you know that they need something, or you know that, oh, I would honor my parents for me to give them some of my stuff, well, very conveniently, you can just speak over your property, Korban, and it's dedicated to God, and the rules of Korban now apply to it. So you can say, sorry, mom, sorry, dad, uh, my stuff is dedicated to the Lord, so I, I can't actually give you any of it, but I can use it, right? Now, that sounds really silly to us, right? That, the, the Pharisaism, the legalism, there is are so obvious because dedicatory oaths aren't really like a part of our lives. But notice, notice the effect of the Korban regulations. The Pharisees have found a way to be religious while still being selfish with their money and unloving toward other people. They've invented a way to be religious but be selfish with their money and unloving toward other people. Friends, do our hearts gravitate toward a form of religion that looks good on the outside but doesn't actually touch our pocketbooks? It doesn't actually require sacrificial generosity. It doesn't actually require sacrificial love toward people in close relationship with us like our parents. Are we in danger of falling into the mindset that as long as we come to church and stay out of jail and learn to talk about doctrine and appear to be nice, that is all that God wants from us. We are free to be selfish with the rest. Jesus says in this instance to the Pharisees, you're making void the word of God by your tradition. Jesus concludes there in verse 13, and many such things you do legalism did not die with the practice of Korban. It's alive and well still today, appealing to our hearts. Legalism looks really good, but legalism is an act. Ultimately, it's an act that rejects God's law. Fourth and final point this morning. Legalism misses the heart. Legalism misses the heart. Jesus concludes his dialogue with the Pharisees there in verse 13. In verse 14, he turns to the general public. He wants to be sure that they get it. Look there at verses 14 and 15. It says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Notice again the repeated word defile Defiled hands, things on the inside defile. Seven times in our passage that word defile comes up. The word defile means to make unclean, to disqualify from entrance into God's presence. Jesus says the things that defile, the things that make us truly unclean, truly unqualified for relationship with God, it's not the food or the dirt on our hands that goes into us. It's the things that come out of us. The disciples don't understand, so when they're alone with Jesus, they ask him what he means. Look there in verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Mark adds, Thus he declared all foods clean. Mark sees in Jesus' words the beginnings of the fulfillment of Jesus, excuse me, Jesus' fulfillment of the dietary requirements in the Old Testament. Look there in verse 20. It says, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and all the rest. Jesus says, look, you want to know the meaning of all those purity laws in the Old Testament? They are so many pictures of how everyday life with an unclean heart makes us impure before God. The things that really defile us, that make us unclean, they come from within. In the Bible, the heart is the center of who you are. The heart is where you want things and where you think things to yourself. Notice the very first thing that Jesus lists among the vices that come out of our hearts. He says, evil thoughts. You might also translate that evil dialogues. Jesus is saying, look, here's the root of our problem. We are people who have evil dialogues with ourselves in our hearts. That's where our sin comes from. Friend, are you aware... Of the kind of dialogues that you have in your heart. Are you aware of the things that you are constantly thinking to yourself. Out of which you live. I once heard a pastor give this illustration. So imagine that on this this DVD right here. We had an HD recording of everything that went on in your heart in the month of September. All of your thoughts, all of your desires, all of your internal dialogues, all of your motives, all of your fantasies, would you you mind, would you mind very much if after the service we just gave this to the tech team and projected it on the screen after the service? I would mind, right? Forget Corban, I would dedicate all my possessions to making that not happen, right? And I had a good month. Here's why, right? You would mind. We would all mind very much. This is why. Look at the things that Jesus says come out of our hearts. There in verse 21 and 22. I'm just going to read through these slowly. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. By the way, theft, murder, coveting, adultery. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard those in a list before earlier today? They're the things exposed by God's law. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting. They're going on in our hearts even when God's common grace restrains them from coming out. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friends, that's why we hide from God's good law because deep down we know that God's good law exposes what is not good about us. The law reveals that we are defiled on the level of our hearts, from the inside out. And so apart from His grace, we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Our our passage this morning is hard to hear, but it's something that God in His wisdom and in His love knows that we need to hear, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Let me close with this. I mentioned earlier that in Mark chapter 8, Mark records these words of Jesus. Jesus says, watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus is using their leaven or bread yeast as an image for the teachings or the errors on the one hand of the Pharisees uh, and on the other hand of Herod, the two sort of interludes in this section of Mark about who Jesus is. It's very interesting, in this section of Mark's gospel, scholars have noted that the imagery of food and bread and meals keeps on popping up. So let me close this morning by talking about three different meals that we've seen in Mark's gospel so far. Three different meals that I think give us a pretty good picture of the three different ways we might respond when God's law exposes our hearts. The first meal is the meal of Herod back in chapter six. Remember, we looked at that story a few weeks ago. Herod throws a debauched birthday party. For his VIP friends. And that meal is a picture of self-indulgence, of living it up, of godless entertainment and drunkenness. Remember the uh, scandalous dance that Herodias' daughter does at that meal? Right? Herod's meal says, yeah, the law exposes me as defiled, so what? Right? Herod's meal throws off God's law and rushes headlong into sin. You remember how that meal ends? It ends in enslavement. It ends with Herod's guilty conscience, with his murder of John the Baptist, even when he didn't want to. Herod's meal is one way we can respond to God's law. Yes, the law exposes my sin. What of it? I'll do what I want. Friends, that ends poorly. What's the second meal? We see this, the second meal is the meal that these Pharisees in chapter 7 want to insist on. It's a a meal of scrupulous hand-washing. They come home from the grocery store and they wash. They wash their hands with a fist. They wash the cups and the pots and the bowls and the vessels and the couches. It all looks so good. But Jesus' point is that this too is a defiled meal. This is a cover-up meal. It is a meal of pretending, It's a meal of replacing Mount Sinai where there's fellowship with God with a much smaller and less intimidating molehill of our standards. There's no communion with God in this meal. And on the day of judgment, this meal will be exposed as a cover-up from hearts every bit as wicked as those at Herod's meal. What's the third meal that we've seen in this section of Mark's gospel? It's the feast of the good shepherd, Jesus. Did you notice how annoyed Jesus was in this passage? Contrast that with how compassionate and gentle Jesus was in last week's passage. What's the difference? In last week's passage, we have needy sinners who have nothing coming to Jesus, interrupting his vacation. And Jesus is all compassion. In this story, we have people who are trusting in their own self-righteousness and wanting to play a game with Jesus. And in his love and his wisdom, Jesus has no time for it. But what is the meal that Jesus has time for? It's the meal when Jesus, remember, takes bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to those who have nothing. Remember, remember, that's a meal that points forward to Jesus giving himself on the cross. As he takes in himself on the cross the defilement of our sin. Right? You understand that as Jesus died on the cross, what was happening? God was crediting your DVD to Jesus' account. And Jesus was bearing the wrath and the punishment and the shame that should have accrued to us. Jesus died for defiled sinners, and he rose from the dead, and now he offers himself free as the bread of life to everyone who will acknowledge their defilement, turn from their sin, and trust in him. I'm hesitant to steal the thunder from next week, but we get another picture of this meal. This free and gracious meal of the salvation that Jesus gives in the passage we'll look at next week. In next week's passage, Jesus travels outside of Israel and a Gentile woman, an unclean, a defiled woman, comes to Jesus and she begs Jesus to help her. She says, Jesus, my daughter has a demon and I need your help. And what does Jesus say to her? He answers her in the language of food. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread, the bread belonging to Israel, and give it to the dogs. (gasps) Is this woman offended that Jesus has called her a dog? No, she says, Jesus, no argument. I am a defiled dog, but I need your mercy. She says, Jesus, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus says, that's it. You get mercy. For this statement, you may go your way. Your daughter is healed. right? When God's holy law exposes our sin, three meals we can partake of. We can cast it off in rebellion. We can pretend and hide and play games with legalism, or we can humble ourselves and say to Jesus, Jesus, I am a defiled sinner, and I need your mercy. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please help me to be holy, even as you are holy. Friends, that's the meal that we need. And that's the meal we come to celebrate now as we turn to the Lord's Supper. Please pray with me before we do. Father, we thank you for the goodness, the holiness of your law. God, we thank you that in your love, your wise, good love, you have not left us in our sin, but, it, but through your convicting law have awakened us to it. God, we thank you that Jesus Christ kept the law, and that He bore in Himself the sin, the punishment, the defilement that we have incurred. Lord, thank You now that He gives Himself freely to sinners who come to Him. Lord, we pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, that we would grab hold of Jesus by faith, that we would be moved and changed by Your great love for us, that we might worship You, give You thanks, and be made into Your holy image.